Good morning, everyone, again. Thank you, Koji, for the introduction, and many thanks to Sosan for this invitation to talk with you this morning. And thank you, Miyoshin, for being the tech host and supporting my appearance on Zoom. The title of my talk this morning is BIPOC Buddhism and My Experience as an Asian American Buddhist. I wish to begin by saying that this talk comes from my heart and my experience and also channels the experience of a number of BIPOC practitioners that I've talked with or read about. Not everyone will agree with me and even some BIPOC may disagree. So let's all be mindful if something disagreeable arises. I also know very well that Clouds is working to create a culture of non-harming and that change takes time. And I support that work and I'm active in it. As a Buddhist activist, I am passionate about applying the vow from our morning chant. Wrapping ourselves in Buddha's teaching, we save all sentient beings. This morning, I want to talk about my progression from being an activist to becoming a Buddhist activist and how I initially felt a disconnect between being an activist of color and practicing Buddhism. I also want to share my perspective of how American Buddhism is often perceived as white Buddhism and of how Buddhism is as practiced by people of color in the United States is often different from American white Buddhism. Finally, I will talk about how American Buddhism has whitewashed its Asian roots and touch on my experience as an Asian American practicing within Buddhism. First, I want to acknowledge some of the people who contributed hugely to the fullness of the place we live in. We live on land stolen from the Dakota and the Anishinaabe peoples who for centuries took loving care of this land that so enticed the white settlers of Minnesota. Let's ask ourselves, what are we doing to support our contemporary indigenous relatives besides acknowledging that we wronged their dead ancestors? Next, let's, let's acknowledge the Black, Indigenous, Asian, Hispanic, and other brown peoples and marginalized white people who were enslaved or whose labor was essentially stolen and whose backbreaking work and community making have built so much of this modern nation. What are we doing right now to honor the gifts that they have left us? <clears throat> And finally, let us be mindful that we Buddhists owe our spiritual traditions to Asians who brought Buddhism to the United States in the 1800s and 1900s. These include my paternal grandparents, Seiji and Masuko Iwata, who arrived in the early 1900s and practiced Nichiren Buddhism their whole lives. How do our spiritual practices truly honor our tradition? Before I started practicing Buddhism, 
I was and still am a racial and social justice activist. The experience of my mother's family of being incarcerated during World War II for being Japanese probably did the most to ignite my activism, to resist the treatment of people in our society as other. I had a visceral connection to my family's suffering last November when I was in Los Angeles. I had arranged in advance with the staff of the Japanese American National Museum to see Irecho, a sacred book containing the first comprehensive listing of more than 125,000 persons of Japanese ancestry who were incarcerated during World War II. The Irecho is a huge book weighing more than 25 pounds. The museum had asked me beforehand for the names and birth years of my incarcerated family members. And I saw that the names in the book were organized by birth year. The staff had placed ribbons on each of the pages that listed the names of my family members. I was able to see my family's names. My mother, Margaret Yaiko Nakagawa, her name before marriage, her brother and my uncle, Francis Yukio Nakagawa, and their parents and my grandparents, Ukuya Steven Nakagawa and Itsue Magdalene Nakagawa. In the same room as the Iraicho are wooden signposts with the names in English and Japanese of each of the assembly centers and concentration camps where the Japanese were imprisoned. And above each signpost is a small jar with soil from each location. People who are connected to those who are interned, were interned, are invited to use a small inked stamp to place a mark underneath each of the related names. As I looked at my family's names in the book and inked a mark next to each one, I could scarcely breathe and I felt as though I were performing a sacrament. I had an almost, almost overpowering sense of the suffering and grit and labor of my ancestors. I prayed for stamina to do the work of Niroto Nayoni, let it not happen again. I tell you that story because a lot of this talk has to do with the notion of belonging and culture, what it means to have a feeling of wholeness and integration in our spiritual culture. My experience within Buddhism hasn't always been a place of fullness and wholeness. I was first drawn to Buddhism when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa. After returning to the United States, I explored various meditation organizations and eventually gravitated toward Clouds and Water Zen Center in 1998. I also had been a social justice activist since being in college, but my activism and Buddhist practice were on two different tracks in my life. I felt the need to keep that part of my life quiet 
in a Buddhist community. This was similar to how I kept my progressive views and my sexuality under wraps at my workplace. I couldn't figure out how to bring my social and racial justice work into a practice that seemed very white and individually focused. My activism didn't seem compatible with Buddhist practice because I didn't have the experience of my whole self being welcome among white Buddhists. But I stayed with my Buddhist practice because it helped me to work with my own suffering and to be compassionate with others who suffered. So I ignored the disconnect for a while. During the middle 2000s, I found other Buddhists of color. First, I went to a weekend retreat for people of color in 2006, held at Clouds. Here, I want to give a shout out to Keika Aguilar San Juan, who was part of the group that organized the retreat. This was the first Buddhist event for people of color that I had ever been to. Next, I participated in a Thich Nhat Hanh retreat for people of color in Deer Park, California, where I cried as I connected to my ancestors. For a few years, some white priest allies and some people of color tried to organize BIPOC projects at Clouds. We had a bunch of meetings, but it was difficult to get traction. Being a BIPOC activist and a Buddhist all came together in a powerful way when a few of us people of color who practice at Clouds brought Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams to St. Paul in 2017. Reverend Angel is an ardent activist, black, queer, Buddhist priest, and author and organizer who has created many programs to help all people to claim liberation. At Clouds, she led a multi-day workshop, including a day for BIPOC participants only. Many people of color talked about that event afterwards, describing it as a transformative event. A number of BIPOC folks who are currently associated with Clouds trace their connection to Clouds to that workshop. On the day when only people of color were with Reverend Angel, we heard her teachings, shared stories, cried, shouted joyfully, and felt heard and seen and mirrored back. Those of us who produced the workshop were so energized that we didn't want to stop feeling the joy afterwards. So later in 2017, we started the Race, Love, and Liberation Lab for Growing Spiritual Things here at Clouds. One of the first projects of the lab was the BIPOC sitting group at Clouds and Water that now meets for meditation and discussion from the heart every week and two Sundays a month. The lab also inspired the start of the Dismantling Whiteness group at Clouds. As I found a few other people of color to practice with, I felt more emboldened to work on making people of color more visible and full-voiced in local Buddhist communities. As I started working with Buddhist allies, I began to see more clearly where my sense of disconnection 
was coming from. How American Buddhism was not seeing and hearing how BIPOC had different needs and some different ways of spiritual practice than white people. This is what I'd like to touch on next. I want to note here that I'm talking about Buddhism as practiced in the United States, whether by white people or people of color, not about Buddhism practiced anywhere else in the world. To many people of color, American Buddhism as is seen as white Buddhism because, well, frankly, some Buddhist communities practice small and large racism. By discounting the experience of racism on a societal level as a source of great suffering, and instead treating issues of race as delusions because they spring from duality. By treating people of color with disrespect, by not providing safe spaces for BIPOC to practice. That's not a problem here at Clouds. By instructing people of color that racism and homophobia and other social issues are their own problem. Lamarad Owens talks about the time he was suffering greatly as a black queer man feeling very out of place and not treated respectfully in a predominantly white sangha. When he talked with the teacher about his pain, he experienced that the teacher was not open to the notion that the sangha itself was a source of great pain. The teacher instructed him to just spend more time on his cushion and work on his suffering through meditation. While it's certainly true that we create suffering for ourselves out of the experience of pain. Lamarad heard that dealing with racism and homophobia was his problem alone. Another possible barrier for BIPOC practitioners is that Buddhism as practiced in much of the United States today has tended to focus on practices that seem most comfortable to white folks. A major example of this is individual practice, especially the step of the Eightfold Path called concentration. I think that this focus on self-improvement through meditation was used to sell Buddhism to many white folks. You sit on your cushion, you meditate, you work on your stuff. You don't have to deal with the messy parts of the world that you left outside the Zendo. I have heard Buddhist practitioners, even here at Clouds, say that they don't come to a Zendo to deal with issues of the world, that they want those left at the door. Well, I feel like one of those that's being asked to stay outside the door. So this singular focus on concentration, on Zazen, which is a central practice but not meant to be isolating can also cause harm. In my experience, Buddhism as practiced by BIPOC within groups differs from Buddhism that's practiced in a white framework. This is a curious evolution. How did Buddhism, which originated in Asia, 
become so white in the United States. I think that BIPOC Buddhism and Buddhism that's practiced through a white framework diverged for a few key reasons. As I mentioned, the focus on individual practice, and in contrast, people of, people of color practice with an awareness of race and with a strong focus on community. BIPOC practitioners are very conscious of race and racism because it's in our bodies, including generations of DNA. I have also experienced that a focus on community is central to spiritual practice in BIPOC groups here at Clouds and elsewhere. In contrast, Buddhists practicing within a white framework may use their practice to bypass connections to community. I see it as a real challenge that many Buddhist communities seem pretty passive, even if well-meaning, in creating safe spaces where social issues can be voiced and heard, and in making a lot of room for different forms of practice. Many Buddhists want one community, which means fitting into the larger white dominant Sangha. But I, as a person of color, can't assume that it's safe to be vulnerable with people who might react with judgment or voyeurism. In every Buddhist community that I'm in, I'm aware of being in a small minority. When I enter a service or retreat, I habitually count the number of people of color. If there are four BIPOC out of 60 people in a gathering, I feel guarded. Lots of people of color count in so many situations we find ourselves in. I know that women also look around rooms and count in some places, as do queer people or people with different abilities. Are there situations you find yourself in where you count how many people might be your allies or who might be safe for you? If you ever have to count because you feel in an undersupported minority, think what it's like to always have to count. That's life for most people of color in the United States. I think that it's critical for all of us to see ourselves included in the teachings. For people of color, this means that sanghas need to offer programming that reflects realities other than just white ones and to have community leaders who aren't all white. This must go beyond tokenism or photos of faces that will look good on the website. There needs to be active support and mentoring of BIPOC leaders. By this, I mean board members, key volunteers, and especially teachers. I also want us to consider a comment that I heard in the news reports after Tyree Nichols's murder that I think is relevant here. Quote, diversifying police ranks is not enough to change the culture of policing, end quote. 
In a similar way, diversifying the leadership of a community is not enough to change the culture of the community. A good start, but not enough in itself. There needs to be a cultural shift. What some at Clouds are trying to do is create a culture or a container of non-harming. What do I think marks a culture of non-harming? Among other things, it's one where we as a community become instinctively aware of when people are treated as other. Where white people can readily pick up on microaggressions or other racist or othering behavior and call out other white people when they do that instead of waiting for someone from a marginalized community to speak up, where it becomes automatic to see lack of equality or representation, and where each of us sees that harm done to someone else is harm done to me. I've talked about my journey as a Buddhist activist and some ways that American Buddhism doesn't work for people of color. Next, I want to describe how much of American Buddhism has whitewashed its Asian roots. This is really troubling, especially to Asian Americans. I know that this has put off some Asian Americans who have ventured into white dominant Buddhist communities and who are reluctant to return. Here's a fundamental error that's an example of whitewashing. I have heard so many American Buddhist leaders trace the roots of Buddhist institutions in America to Suzuki Roshi's emergence in the 1960s as the founder of San Francisco Zen Center. In a 2017 tribute to him, Lions Roar magazine said that he started sitting Zazen alone in 1959 until some Americans joined him, and that led to San Francisco Zen Center and thousands of followers. That gets me riled up. The real story is that Suzuki Roshi came to the United States to minister to an already functioning temple called Sokoji. He didn't need to wait until Americans joined him because the Japanese Americans who started Sokoji in 1934 were already there. After a lot of white counterculture folk and seekers flocked to his teachings, the converts outgrew Sokoji and started San Francisco Center. Suzuki Roshi moved there in 1969. Beyond the popular whitewash, of the Asian roots of Buddhism, many American sanghas routinely minimize our Asian American heritage. Even recently, I have heard American white Buddhists refer to the spiritual practices of the early white converts as earnest or more serious Buddhism, which they contrast with the cultural Buddhism practiced by the Asian American settlers. 
Also, many sanghas use Asian forms and practices without paying respect to their Asian roots and sometimes denying them. These forms and practices include bowing, priest robes, dharma names, priest names, chants, texts, bowls, and other objects for sounds, temple architecture or furnishings, etc. And there are those who question why we need the Asian aspects of the form at all, or even the forms themselves, and why we can't just focus on the Dharma. I don't have a problem with adapting Buddhism to various cultures. This is done in every country where Buddhism has a significant following. It's the erasure of history, the lack of recognition, and not claiming or continuing our lineage that troubles me. Even when Buddhists choose not to use many of the traditional forms, we need to honor that our practices were brought to us and were protected during World War II by Asians and Asian Americans. This is how Buddhism actually survived to get passed down to us in the United States. We might also ask ourselves why it is necessary to remove many of the forms or why we don't share the Asian cultural context with more people. I want to talk about a direct experience of immersing in my Asian American culture as a Buddhist practitioner. The central reason for the trip I took in November to Los Angeles was to participate in the Jukaye, which was a multi-day Jukai ceremony to celebrate the 100th anniversary of Soto Zen Buddhism in the United States. I was honored to be one of the representatives of clouds among the 100 invited participants, and I'm deeply grateful to Sosan for the invitation. The Jukaye was held at the 100-year-old Zenshuji Soto Mission in the Little Tokyo neighborhood of LA, the first Soto Zen temple in the US. Sosan has talked about the awesome experience of each group of participants climbing up to sit on the high altar and being called children of Buddha by the leaders of the ceremony and about her joy with the additional Dharma name she received. Miyoshin gave a talk about being very moved by the ceremonies and chants. I also felt tremendous wonder and joy through the experiences that Sosan and Miyoshin described. My most deeply felt experience of the Jukaye, however, was its culturally spiritual depth. Namely, the preceptor of the ceremonies was Japanese. The celebration was held in a temple built more than 100 years ago by Japanese Americans. Also, there were numerous daily invocations to ancestors. To the transmission, transmission teacher of the preceptor, to the ancestors of donors, to deceased priests and temple members, to our Dharma ancestors, Karigiri Roshi, 
and Suzuki Roshi and Meizumi Roshi. Invoking and breathing in the presence of ancestors is very Asian and dare I say even BIPOC. And so much of the chanting was in Japanese, even though I still struggle to recite the Daishin Dorani at a fast pace. When chanting, I felt connected to my grandparents, who as Nichiren Buddhists chanted the Lotus Sutra constantly. As I describe this to you, I am perhaps anticipating remarks that maybe haven't occurred to anyone, but there's a little voice in my head that says, oh, how cute is that? Carol is Japanese and got to experience ceremonies that had so much Japanese in them. To me, this is about more than, cult than a cultural connection. It's about experiencing Buddhist practice that is deeply connected to and growing from its roots, from our roots. There's an authenticity about that which goes deep inside me. Miyoshin and Sosad have talked about wanting to create a Jukaye event that members of this community can experience. If that were to happen, I would want it to arise from our roots as much as possible. In closing, I have some comments about the work ahead for all of us. I am committed to saving all beings. And I do feel that I need to take care of BIPOC communities foremost. I believe that racism will end when white people decide to end it. And that BIPOC practitioners cannot afford to wait for white people to get rid of racism, but have to follow our own paths individually and in our communities. These paths may converge with ones that some white people are on, but can't be forced. I also don't think it's the responsibility of BIPOC people to figure out how to change the hearts and minds of those who practice Buddhism through white frameworks. I have studied directly and through their teachings with teachers such as Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams, Zenju Earthland Manuel, Thich Nhat Hanh, Lama Rod Owens, and others. Learning from them and all the great teachers, including the Buddha himself, I firmly believe that we all need liberation, not just from the small sufferings that we create for ourselves, but also the big core ones, the deeply held ones connected to our self-image that can be scary to acknowledge. Even though some of our paths will diverge, ultimately, all of us depend on one another for liberation. I can't be liberated if you're not liberated. If we are each fiercely committed to our own liberation, then we can save all beings. Thank you for being present with me.
Okay, we have about 10 minutes for Q&A if you like. And people on Zoom can just put in the chat or just unmute. Well, I'd just like to um, thank Carol for such a brilliant talk and uh, how much she must have really taken the time so that we would understand uh, all of us and be together in this. I just appreciate it so much, Carol. Thank you. Shout out to Bushin. Hi. Thank you. Shout out to Keiko. <laughs> I have a question. Yeah, speak up. Go ahead. Carol, it's Julie Warner. Hi, Julie. Hi. Um, you used the word voyeurism in your talk. And I remember uh, listening to your talk at uh, MZMC last year, and you used the word there as well. And I think you gave a little bit of an explanation as to what, what you mean by that. And I, I understand, I think, what, what is meant by that. But would you be willing to just expand on that term a little bit um, as, you, as you have used it? Thank you very much thank, in advance. Thank you, Julie. Um, one example of voyeurism is that I've heard um, people in various places, including at Clouds and Water, say they really wish that they could be in the BIPOC Sangha because they really wish they could see what goes on there. That is voyeurism. That is not, you know, an invited and welcome um, multi-experiential um, gathering. Thank you, Carol. Or in situations um, that I've been in in workshops where it seems to me that, that some white people are just really getting off on the stories that BIPOC people tell rather than just feeling deep inside of themselves, you know, what their own experience is. Does that help, Julie? Yes, very much. Thank you. I feel like it's a very good reminder to, to me as well. I have a couple of questions. Hi, Carol. It's Anne. Hi, Julie. Um, two things. One, you referred to marginalized white whites I want to I wonder who that is and number two um, what ro what role does internalized oppression play in uh, liberation as you see it thank you well I use the term marginalized white um, people in the in the acknowledgement in the cultural slash land acknowledgement that I gave and I said that because I didn't want to overlook the fact that um, 
white people have been historically indentured, taken advantage of, you know, and in many ways also forced to contribute to something greater that they couldn't necessarily enjoy the fruits of. So that's what I meant. Um, and how does internalized oppression, could you repeat that question so I get it right? Yeah. What, it, what do you see as the role of inter, like internalized impression, what role does it play in liberation? Like addressing that as part of, um, as part of liberating. It's a huge part of my practice. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. I, you made a statement that if all the oppression, that white people owned the ability to stop oppression, and for my own internalized oppression, I don't actually see it that quite that way, but. I didn't quite say it that way, although maybe it was taken that way. I said that racism will end when white people end it, decide right. to end it, because there aren't enough BIPOC people and especially not enough BIPOC in positions of wealth, great wealth, and great power in this country to, you know, really end racism. Um, so, so that's what I meant there, or that's what I said um, and meant. Um, you know, as far as internalized oppression, I mean, I think that's one of the core things that we need to work on, to look on and to look at deeply and also just to love ourselves through the entire process so that we can be liberated from that internal oppression, internalized oppression. Did I answer your question? Yeah, I think so. So I want to um, bring in some of our Zoom participants here. Uh, we had a couple of chat comments. Uh, Victoria says, thank you, Carol, for clear and beautiful presentation. Nancy says, thank you for such an enlightening talk. The Japanese community in my country of Peru is very strong, loved, and respected. Of course, that was not the case during Spaniards' times. My ancestors, the Incas, were abused, taken advantage of, just as the Japanese community was. It is still rampant for some natives as we speak. Um, Rain has a practice question. What do you call the Buddhism practiced by the community Americans of community of Americans of Asian descent in America? I think I call that. Okay, I'm I'm looking at the chat. Do you mean do you mean like people like myself and? Other Asian Americans? Um, I was thinking of um, the uh, American Buddhist Church. Ah, that is, um, thank you for, for clarifying that. I was wondering if that's what you meant or if you were talking about me. The, the American Buddhist Church, I believe, is called Jodo Shinshu. Yeah. So when you say American Buddhism is white, um, uh, how do we include the, the, um, 
American Buddhist church as being American Buddhism. I guess I said that some, I, I didn't mean to say that all Buddhism in the United States is white Buddhism, but that people of color often see American Buddhism as it has evolved as white Buddhism. Thank you so did, much. Did that help? Thanks. And then, um, Carla, go ahead. Hi, Carol. Hi, Carla. Thank you for your talk this morning. Um, I wanted to comment that I, I really identified with what you were saying about um, it's really okay for clouds and water to have an umbrella and then it's like the BIPOC Sangha is a separate Sangha and that's fine and very, very good. And rather than trying to assume that we should all be one, I mean, I would hope that there would be a little overlap now and then and some collaboration here and there and, you know, some love back and forth. Um, but I just really want to respect that we have a BIPOC Sangha as part of Clouds and Water. And I'm really glad for that. And um, sort of related to that, I I identified with what you were said about not seeing another person as other. And so I think as a white person in at Cloud Zone Water, we should, it's like the BIPOC Sangha is their own Sangha and they're not other. They're, we're, we're, we're together. So I wanna acknowledge the whole package. Um, so, that's what I wanted to say, and I'd happy to hear anything else you want to re reply to that. So, thank, thank you. you, thank you for that, thank you for that acknowledgement, Carla. Um, I I also have noted in um, other settings that there's not only back and forth, some back and forth, in the sense that they're members of clouds who um, are often at the big service as in the Zendo now, who are also members of the BIPOC Sangha. And that members of the BIPOC Sangha have, um, some of them have become board members. Um, some of them are key volunteers at Clouds and Water. So I think although this was not necessarily the purpose at all, that being in the BIPOC Sangha has also created some appreciation for clouds and water. Oh, yeah, sure. We got one minute. Okay, we have one minute here for one comment. <laughs> Hi, Bushin. This is Minna. Hi, um, Alanya. Um, thank you so much. I just mostly want to express profound gratitude, not just as, you know, uh, the ED of Clouds and Water, but as a BIPOC practitioner here and, and the work that you 
have been so central to over the years is so much of the reason that I'm here at all and that so many of the, the folks who engage as BIPOC with clouds are here at all. So just your impact has been enormous and I appreciate you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you. And, and I, thank you. And I thank so many other people who have been part of this. You know, just just to name a few, and I'm going to forget names. Keika, Yoko Jun, Raul. Anyway, I see Alice Juan has her oh. hand up. Is can we fit it's something very, in? Yeah, go go ahead, Alice. If, if you don't mind. Yes. Hi, everybody. It's Alice here in California where it's sunny today between many days of rain. But um, thank you. Maybe I think Carol might have brought the sun out for us. So I'm wondering down the line at Clouds and Water, is there the possibility? I don't know what it would be called, but because I feel like all of I mean, I've heard your your talk twice now and I and I feel wholer you know i just feel like healthier just you know if there's a strong impact and i feel like other folks as well but is there a chance down the line that we can have a group that is mixed together that's brave that's humble that's willing to talk through these issues you know i mean i feel like we have to practice also having these kinds of really difficult conversations. And maybe that, that group already exists, but I'm just wondering, you know, just looking down the line, you know, if there might be, I, and, and I feel like there, you know, that would be a kind of a brainstorming of contextualizing what, what it would be, you know, but that, that there can be conversation and exchange. Thank you. I would say just briefly, Alice, thank you for bringing that up, just briefly, and what I'm going to say is basically all the thought that's gone into it is that Aranya and I have talked about this. Maybe having some. <laughs> I mean, that it was, it was just, a little bit of conversation in a meeting. Because because also I, I've realized that these kinds of spaces are also practicing a kind of democracy that we are now lacking. You know, just even respect for the citizens in the group and being able to just hear and, you know, just, just learn also. I, I mean, as a, it's a Buddhist space, but also that might. Thank you. <laughs> Okay. Thanks, okay. everyone. Thank you. If if anybody wants to keep talking or come conversing um, after what happens next, I can be around till about eleven o'clock. Whether you're in the sangha, I mean, whether you're in the zendo or on on Zoom, I'm happy to keep chatting. Thank you. Thank you.